You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, July 30th, 2007. Episode 30, Croatia, Alabama, and Colorado Collide. In this episode, Vince Horn speaks with two of Buddhist Geeks' most active users, Daniel Ingram and Hokai Sabal. They discuss the reasons that people get into Buddhist practice, what really inspires one to go for it, and what hinders one from doing so. They finish off their conversation touching on the differences between Western psychology and insight practices which aim for a radical transformation of identity and not simply the health or development of one's identity. This is part one of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. I'm uh, talking today to Daniel Ingram, who's a past guest of ours on Buddhist Geeks, and he's joining us from Alabama. And then I'm also join, uh, joined by Hokai Sabal, and he's joining us actually from Croatia. And uh, both Hokai and Daniel are kind of our super users on Buddhist Geeks. They are uh, constantly commenting in the, uh, in the threads of different posts and podcasts, and they're, they're kind of two of our main, I don't know what you say, community elders. I don't know if that's the right phrasing, but... <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to, uh, to talk to them today about some topics around um, Buddhist practice and progress and concepts and practice. A couple different only themes. If you st- only if you stop commenting our age. How, are you guys both in your 30s? <laughs> Not anymore. Yeah. Okay, so 30, 40. So yeah, you guys are probably represent kind of, I guess they're two halves to the Buddhist Geeks listenership. One is probably in their 20s uh, yeah. and, th- and early 30s, and then the other seems to be 30s and 40s. Um, not many people seem to be much older than that or younger. So, you guys will be a good good addition to the uh, to the Buddhist Geeks audio. So, we wanted to jump in uh, first. I, I guess I'll just ask Hokai if you could just say a little bit about your background in Buddhist practice and kind of where you, what angle you're coming from uh, in this conversation. Okay, let me try briefly. Sure. Uh, I started 20 years ago uh, formally with the Buddhist practice and. In this uh, two decades, I've been exposed to teachings and practices of all three uh, major traditions that are present in in the West. Uh, I have done a lot of uh, textual study, especially in the first 15 years, going through the Tripitaka and the Mahayana Canon and the basic uh, Vajrayana teachings. And for the last 10 years, I've been uh, practicing uh, with a teacher from... uh, Japanese uh, Shingon tradition, which is a Japanese form of uh, Vajrayana. Mm. But I don't see myself as uh, belonging uh, exclusively to any school or lineage, uh, since I'm uh, still uh, simultaneously exposed to several uh, other teachers as well. Okay. I also work as a translator and publisher, and I try to do my best to inform uh, the Croatian-speaking readers of uh, the latest developments in the territory of uh, Buddhism, psychology, integral studies, etc. Okay, great. And then, Daniel, we've we've talked to you before, so if anyone's interested more in depth of your background, they can check out, um, I think it was episode six, we 
you gave some history of your practice background, and you're basically rooted in the Theravada tradition? I would say that's true, although I've definitely uh, studied with uh, Mahayana, um, a little bit of Vajrayana, a little bit of Zen, a little bit of Hindu Vedanta, some Western traditions, and uh, some other traditions. So, yeah, relatively broad as well, though. Um, I would say my uh, home turf is uh, relatively Theravada. Okay, great. So we've got quite an eclectic background here. And the topic we wanted to touch on first uh, has to do with people's actual practices, not so much theory, but actually, I guess what you call just doing it, like actually taking the theory and putting it into practice. And we wanted to talk about the different reasons first that people get into Buddhist practice. It seems like the reason you'd get into it is to get enlightened, but that's obviously not true. So would either of you like to talk about the different reasons you see uh, people uh, getting into Buddhist practice, into Buddhist scenes? Yeah, certainly. So from a uh, cynic's point of view, which I'm just going to start off in my typical voice here, um, (laughs) a lot of people get into Buddhism um, for something uh, to do that feels good. And they get into it because they find interesting people there. And they find interesting communities, and often these communities are people who they might think are, you know, relatively intelligent or sophisticated or interesting or even exotic. And they find lots of philosophy there that is very interesting. A lot of it seems to make a lot of sense. And they find all kinds of cool trappings and costumes and neat concepts Mm. and those kinds of things. So that's some of the reasons. Other people uh, have actually begun to have meditation experiences of their own. They have powerful dream or a vision or they had an energetic phenomena or they, you know, had some other interesting thing happen and they're trying to figure out uh, what to do with that. And inspired by that, they go looking around. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people get into it sort of out of cultural inertia. Their friends just might be into it. And so that's kind of what they find themselves doing. And uh, so there's a wide variety of uh, reasons that uh, people uh, get into this stuff. Uh, some very experiential and some very sort of social, theoretical, philosophical. Mm, okay. And Hokai, do you, do you think there's anything there you'd like to add? Are there any other reasons you see people, friends or yeah, people in your community? It seems that, it seems that Daniel's description covers uh, quite universally the, the, the way this, this phenomenon happens uh, in all Western countries. Mm. Uh, so uh, I would only add, perhaps, that uh, there are also people who come uh, through first reading many books, also more intellectually inclined people, mm-hmm. who are not much better off at the start because uh, often lacking uh, serious practice, they, they develop strange notions, especially about the more exalted or the more advanced stages in Buddhist meditation. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. Okay, cool. So... Of the, all those reasons that you mentioned, what what would you guys say are the the core reasons or motivations that would actually lead one to get to the advanced stages and more quote unquote exalted? I don't think, guess that's the right way to put it, but the more advanced stages of the practice. What what are some of the reasons that will actually help one get there, and what are some of the, those reasons that really are secondary or maybe not even related at all? Maybe Daniel, if you you want to start with the uh, the cynic's perspective. Sure. Well, in terms of things that I think uh, cause people to get to the more advanced stuff, it, from my point of view, it largely boils down to who has managed to cross what I would call the arising and passing away, um, or what the uh, Mahayana would call 
who has finished the first path of accumulation in their five path model mm-hmm. or what the Christians would you know call seeing the light or um, something like that. And uh, it's a stage usually involves energetic phenomenon, bright lights and strong practice and visions and powerful dreams and, and uh, maybe sexual feelings and stuff like that. People who have done that are different than people who have not done that. And they tend to inhabit spiritual scenes, look around and tend to be vastly more interested in real practice than people um, who, for whatever reason, have not done that. Mm-hmm. Other things that may get people um, into real practice are some people are just in very, very inspired by the notion that there might be uh, much more to perceive, to understand, to comprehend. And uh, that may be inspiring enough just based on the theory that they may really say, hey, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I think other things that are very inspiring are actually uh, knowing people who have done it themselves. I think first, there's few things as powerful as firsthand contact with people who themselves know the territory well and have been there for themselves. And if you actually get to become friends with these people and talk with them honestly about it, knowing somebody else who has done it, I think is extremely inspiring because if they can do it, you know, then maybe you can do it. Right. And so I think those things are uh, some of the primary reasons. Um, one, spontaneously, you know, meditation experiences. Two, people who just, the, the theory um, leads them to the conclusion that there might be much more either to try to, you know, mitigate some suffering or because they just are, you know, love achieving things or whatever it is. There are lots of reasons that people get into hardcore practice, mm. um, you know, and then being inspired by someone who's uh, done it, I think, are some of the major things that help bridge that gap. Cool. So those things really are, like you said, bridge. They're a bridge to actually then doing some sort of intensive practice that leads to the fruits of the practice. And that's the reason they, I guess, use that phrase, fruit, fruits of the practice. So, Hokai, did you, did you want to add anything to that? Like, do you, do you see similar kinds of motivations leading people to make progress? Yes, sure. I think Daniel has uh, put it very, very succinctly and very precisely. And I, I would like to add uh, certain obstacles to developing a clear uh, practice-oriented motivation. Mm. Perhaps... From, from what I have experienced with various groups, one, one major obstacle is, is uh, having groups of practitioners where uh, belonging to a group and subscribing to certain common held beliefs and concepts is more important than making progress in practice. Mm. Okay? This is, I think, a major obstacle. Then the second one would be being exposed to a teacher who either... Uh, won't teach or cannot teach concrete, precise practices. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is another major obstacle. And the third major obstacle is the whole therapeutic context oh, and right. the therapeutic language that is being used in, in many Western settings, wherein uh, making ourselves, uh, we, th- there's nothing wrong with it in itself. But wherein making making ourselves feel better and more comfortable with ourselves where we are is uh, slowly taking uh, greater greater uh, emphasis in in Buddhist uh, uh, lectures and, mm-hmm. and ways of interpreting the purpose of the Buddhist path instead of getting some really radical and strong perspectives uh, through practice that can really turn your uh, view uh, upside down. You know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I hear what you're saying totally, especially that third point. I, I have a hard time picking up uh, books by Western teachers and not seeing those two 
almost at some point, and sometimes the whole book completely conflated the difference between having a healthy psychology and self-worth and, and all those sorts of things. And then actual, the difference between that and radical transformation of identity yeah. or of some sort exactly. of, yeah. Exactly. So what's up with that? Why, why are those being confused? Especially if the teachers you'd assume they're teaching, they've had some experience of the latter. What's, well, it, why is that it's, happening? It, it's, That's a it's strong a assumption. I think it's a cultural, yeah, that's a strong assumption, I agree. <laughs> but I think it's a cultural problem, first of all. Uh, there, there was a period in the Western uh, psycho-spiritual context where psychology actually took over the whole, the whole language of speaking about interior development. And this is, this is a very important uh, dimension, of course. Uh, no, no one of the listeners should, should uh, have an impression that we are minimizing or trying to make irrelevant the, the importance of psychological health and right. even the psychological development beyond what is considered health. Uh, but uh, the purpose of uh, Buddhist meditation, especially the purpose of uh, insight uh, meditation, in any tradition, uh, is, is directed in, in quite a, a different and uh, special uh, type of uh, discovery, which it, it, the, the basic characteristic of the discovery is shaking the foundations of our identity. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it doesn't matter uh, what sort of identity you bring to that uh, edge. Mm. What, what do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I love all those points. I think uh, that while uh, Western psychology has added a tremendous amount to the understanding of uh, you know human relationships and the developmental stages of life and uh, communication and at some aspects of uh, what motivates us to do things that may not be in our best interest and has contributed greatly on those fronts, I think it uh, is extremely dangerous, as Hokai so clearly points out, when it becomes mixed up with a practices that are trying to get away from obsession with the content of experience mm-hmm. instead of trying to shift one to understanding ultimate characteristics of that experience, however defined, such as impermanence or the suffering inherent in uh, the fundamental um, perception of things uh, through the, uh, delu- the illusion of duality or um, you know, uh, concepts such as uh, emptiness or uh, no self, or however you want to uh, explain these things, or even uh, true self, a term I don't like to use, but shifting the practice away from obsession with what's actually uh, going on in terms of the specifics of the field of experience, whether or not one's being neurotic, or whether or not one's being really happy, or, you know, whether or not one's having a good thought, or having a bad thought, or whether or not I'm a good person, or whether or not I'm doing the right thing, to noticing sensations come and go, to getting one's concentration strong enough to really perceive moment to moment how the field of experience unfolds, how causes lead to effects, how intentions lead to actions, how these things arise naturally dependent on other causes. And fundamental, um, very core, basic uh, perceptual insights such as those, I I think it's really hard for people to shift out of their highly psychologized perspective, particularly in the West, I've done some retreats in uh, some Eastern countries, uh, largely around Eastern practitioners, and I do not find the same obsessions. They have some different ones, usually around uh, idealizing the Buddha and usually having grown up in it very much as a religion. It's much more sort of ritualistic, which I think is a different 
sort of a trap, whereas in the West it tends to be much more uh, psychological. Um, but mm-hmm. still, yeah, it's interesting to see how they don't have that same set of psychological problems. They don't spend all their time talking to the insight teacher about their relationships and their uh, mm-hmm. their work problems <laughs> and their mother and that kind of stuff. So uh, I, I really like the points that Hokai is uh, making. So how in the world do we get practitioners to shift their focus from their fascination with their relationships and their, you know, and their mother and their job? How in the world do we shift that towards them noticing universal characteristics, towards actually practicing time-tested techniques to actually becoming uh, masters, not of theory, but of, from their own uh, direct experience of these teachings so that they're just obvious to them? I think that's a really important question. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by c for chaos For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.c4chaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference. Hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.